First Peter chapter 2, let's start in verse number 9. I, I want to read like the whole chapter. I couldn't get it, but this is the part that we'll be really focusing on <clears throat> is verses uh, number 9, um, let's see, 9 and 10 especially. But we'll set it with reading all the way down to verse 12. So Peter writes, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we gather together as your people, those of us in the room that are saved, as we come together, may we do exactly what Peter is writing and prescribing for us to do. In order to proclaim your excellencies, we must first see your excellencies, know of your excellencies, to feel in our hearts about you and about all of your doing and all of your work and in our hearts saying, those things are excellent. And so my prayer as we gather together, as we've sung songs together, as we've already heard the word being read over us, as we've already confessed, and as, we've, uh, and as we now sit under the preaching of your word, and as we remember you and taking of the Lord's Supper, as we do all of these things, would you reveal your excellencies to us? May you stir up our affections towards your excellent ways and your excellent working. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So if you, are, um, if you are new to the Point Community Church, generally we are working our way through a book of the Bible. So right now, in fact, the book of the Bible that we're working our way through is the book of, well, try it again, the book of John, that's right. But we've taken a few week break from the book of John and we are looking at, it's going to actually be, I think today's week number eight. We just got a couple more weeks where we're kind of looking at what it means to be the church. And I think that's, that's important to us. And as we've talked about this, we've, we've kind of preached a couple of sermons getting into the, our, what we call our, our identities. And now we're kind of preaching our way through each of the identities that are found up here on the wall. And we find ourselves at the last one, which is the identity of missionary. And I will say this, I feel like, when we talked about prayer and we talked about missionaries, that that's probably two areas that very few people in here feel like, hey, I do those things very well. You know, kind of like uh, Michael Scott in the office, when they ask him about his weaknesses, his, he's like, ah, oh, you know, my weaknesses are that I, uh, I work too hard, I, I care too much, I do too much, I love too much, that, well, in fact, my, uh, in fact, my strengths are actually my weaknesses. Like, you know, some of us may be delusional enough that we may pray, God, you know what? The truth is I just pray too much, right? I share the gospel too much, Jesus, help me not to share the gospel and talk about you all the time. But, but like, are you, is that any of you in here? Like, no, right? That's not you. 
And so I feel like my job in preaching about prayer and in preaching especially about missionaries is to do twofold. It's the one is to inspire you. It's to help you to see who Jesus is so that you want to pray to him. It's to reveal to you the heart of Jesus. A Jesus that says like, man, the whole Trinity's at work when you pray. God the Father is intently listening. The Son, Jesus, is mediating your prayers. The Spirit's been given as an intercessor praying when you don't know how to pray. He's praying through you. It's, to, it's so that you see that. It's to know who God is so that it, it inspires you to pray more. The same way that I want to do here when we talk about being a missionary. I want to inspire you into the excellencies of God so that you want to talk about Him more. Second fold, it's to equip you. It's to equip you in how to pray. So we've, we, we're working toward that. We're, we're producing a prayer guide every week that's available online as well as uh, printed copies here that you can take these and you can kind of pray through the things that should be important to us as a church. Certainly you've got your stuff that you can add to the list and there's always space for you to do that. And so my job is to equip you and I need to equip you. I need to teach you. I need to teach you about who God is because all of us has myth, misconceptions about who God is. And I need to teach you who the church is. Because the truth is, is many of you have misconceptions about the church. In fact, many of you, the fundamental truths you were taught about the church were, were wrong. Now, far be it to me to say that your grandma or your mom or your Sunday school teacher was, was wrong, but if they taught you this, then they were wrong. How many of us learned this little ditty that we used to do with our hands and we would say, here's the church and here's the steeple and open the doors and you guys are doing it and here's all the people. And Although cute, that is wrong. This is not the church. The church is inside. The church is the people. Now the people need a building and, and praise God, like we don't have a steeple, but, but we got a building, right? God gave us a building and that's an awesome thing. And here we are, we have a building just as a family needs a home, a church, the people need a, a building to gather in and we have a building. But ultimately the church is not an organization the church is not a business. The church is not a, a, a marketplace where we're marketing religious wares, religious services. Ultimately, what the church is, is the church is the people of God. So there are, not everyone that comes to church is the church. Like you may go, like, why is this person that I wait on, if you're a waitress or this person that you work with, why are they so crabby and grumpy and and bitter and angry, and yet they're, they, they say they're the part of the church. They go to church. Well, the truth is maybe they come to church. Maybe they go to church, but maybe they're not the church because the church ultimately is, it's a people. It's the people of God. That's why we call this that we're doing right now in here, we call it a gathering because what's happening right now is the saints of the Point Community Church that had been scattered abroad all over Franklin County, Woodford County, Anderson County, Mercer County, even Owen County, the, the saints of the Point Community Church that have been scattered abroad. We've come together this morning. We've gathered together this morning. That's why we call it a, a gathering. We gather together in unity and in worship to worship God. The church is fundamentally this, and it's important, and you see your role as a missionary for you to understand this, that the church is the people of God. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is 
individuals who have been called, as Peter writes, out of darkness. We've been called out of sin. We've been called out from under the domain and the rule of Satan and his dominions. We've been called out of sin, out of the darkness of this world. And we've been called first and foremost to God, out of the world. And first and foremost, we've been called to God, to fellowship and communion, to know this great God that exists, that is real, to know him, to fellowship, to have communion with him. And secondly, we've been called to each other. We've been called to know each other, to be in fellowship and communion with each other. And then as the church, God will send us out. He will commission us and he will scatter, he will scatter us to live on his mission. That in fact, before we can talk about being missionaries, we must first understand God's mission. In the Latin, it is missio Dei. What is the mission of God? Well, we could point to a number of different verses in the Bible, but I think maybe Habakkuk 2.14 sums it up the best, maybe. Here is the mission of God. That for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So think about an ocean. Think about a body of water. Think about a sea and think about how the waters, I mean, that's what it is by nature, how the waters cover it. And what God is saying is my mission is for the earth to be filled, to be, to be covered over with what? With a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's to be filled with a knowledge of how good, how excellent, how beautiful, how powerful, how glorious, how transcendent God is. That's what he means by glory. It's for the whole earth, all the inhabitants of the earth to be filled with knowledge of the goodness of God, the glory of God, the power of God. The way that that is happening is twofold. It's happening through his people as we evangelize, that's proclaiming to those who don't know it, the truth of knowing it. And as we disciple, as we, as we massage deeply in this knowledge, as we continue to speak about this knowledge of who God is and what God has done, that it is not that God needs a mission for his people, but rather what God needs is he needs a people for his mission. That God's mission exists. And why do we, the church, why do we exist? Well, we're part of the fulfillment of that mission, but also we exist to carry out and to do that mission. God is, through his power, he is filling the earth with a knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And how is he doing that? He is doing that through a people. The mission the missio Dei, the mission of God is what God is currently doing. God is revealing himself, revealing his excellencies, revealing his beauty. God is filling the earth with a knowledge of his glory. And that is his mission. And he is doing it again. Who is he doing it through? He is doing it through a people that God is choosing and gathering a people. He's saving a people, purchasing a people collecting for himself a people, a people to which he will say, you are mine. I purchased you. You belong to me. I own you. I love you. I've set my love upon you. I'm revealing myself 
to you. And now I'm sending you out into all the earth to carry out my purpose, to carry out my mission, to partner with me in helping to make the very ends of the earth know my glory and my knowledge and my beauty of who I am. And in fact, what we read here in 1 Peter 9, that's nothing new in the Bible. I mean, that's not a brand new verse new to, first, to, to Peter. It's not like in this moment, this is what Peter's saying. No, what Peter's writing and pinning there is the very pattern and rhythm we see all throughout the Bible. That this is the truth of who God is as he reveals himself to us. That God is a God who, who, uh, who goes and who sins. Nothing new, it's the pattern that God himself is a God who both goes and God sends. I mean, think about the creation story. Think about the story of God in the Bible, in Genesis. God creates an earth and it's all good. He puts it, fills it with man, puts man in it, tells man, hey, take care of this one commandment I give to you. Don't do this one thing. And Adam and Eve, they sin. And in their sin, everything gets broken. And what does God do when all of the earth gets broken and messed up? He doesn't just say, Sorry about your luck, you're on your own. Damn everyone in it to hell. No, that's not what he does, but what does God do? God, ultimately he sends. He sends his son, Jesus, and Jesus as God willfully goes and he comes to his people and ultimately Jesus goes all the way to the cross, lays down his life in order that God can forgive and restore and rescue a people. And Jesus, after his death, Jesus ascends onto high. And when Jesus gets into heaven, what does Jesus do? He sends his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He sends it to the church in order to collect the saints and to work and to empower the church. And the Spirit willfully goes and the Spirit comes. And guess what the Spirit does? He sends out the people of God to go and to fulfill the mission of God. And that's what's happening. That's the pattern that's the pattern of God, to draw people out, to reveal himself to them, to save them, to purchase them, to cleanse them, and then to send them out. And it's all throughout the Bible. There's a guy in Genesis by the name of Abram. And Abram's basically a pagan, a pagan business owner, if you will. He's, a, he's a, a somewhat of an affluent man, but he, he's a pagan. He knows very little about God and God chooses him and God shows up and God reveals himself to him. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, you are mine. You are mine. And Abraham has faith in God. He trusts God. He believes God. And God says that that faith in you will be accounted as righteousness to you. And so God forgives him of his, of his sin through Abraham's faith in him. And then God promises him that I'm going to bless you. And in blessing you, this is what I want to do. I'm going to bless you. And then through you, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. That all of the inhabitants of the earth will be blessed through you. And that's what we see happening. That sets up the pattern in the Bible. A person, become, Abraham, becomes a family. A family becomes a, a, a people group. A people group becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation in Exodus. I mean, the first, they make it through a half a book of the Bible. And then in Exodus, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. They don't even really know who God is. They've just got faint memories of who God is. But yet they believe in this God that Abraham, that revealed himself to Abraham. They've heard stories from their great, 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 great grandparents. And so now they're, they're there and they're, they're praying to this God. God, you revealed yourself to our, to our great granddaddy, Abraham. You made promises that we were gonna be a blessing to all the nations. I don't think this is it. 
I don't think the blessing is whips on our back and pyramids being built. There's something greater. And God shows up in Exodus to the children of Israel and he makes promises to them. He reveals himself to them. In his mercy, in his grace, he rescues them and he reveals his work and will and his commands and his salvation to them. And he says this in them. There's a refrain throughout the whole Old Testament. He's saying, Israel, I love you. Israel, I'm, I, I'm coming to you. Israel, I'm revealing this to you so that through you the nations will know there is a God in Israel. God is doing this work to them so that it may go through them. But Israel did not love God. Israel did not worship God. Israel did not, was not obedient to God, so God sends prophets to Israel. And how does, how does God call the prophets? The same way he calls out the prophets, he reveals himself to the prophets, speaks his word, and then sends them out. We see this in, in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of God, and Isaiah has a vision of God. He has a vision of heaven. He sees God in some way, somehow, some form. He sees God high and lifted up. He sees angelic beings all around him. When Isaiah sees the glory of God, Isaiah is undone by that. And Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And seeing God's glory, Isaiah understands his sinfulness, and God intervenes has one of these seraphim fly over, this angelic being fly over, pull a hot coal with a set of tongs out of a fire, touch Isaiah's lips and says, look, now I've cleansed you, I've purified you. And Isaiah, when, when he sees this, then, then God says, now whom, whom shall I go? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's response to that is, here am I, send me. The pattern of God that we see throughout the Bible is that God brings us in. He blesses us. He saves us. He forgives us. And then he says we have a mission. And he sends us out. He gathers us together in order to scatter us to the very ends of the earth. Jesus does the same with his disciples. The same thing we see in the book of Acts when we come into Paul. Paul's a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. He feels like his one mission from God, the mission he's been sent on, is to scatter the church, to destroy the church, to stamp out the church. So Paul is zealous in doing that. And then one day he's going to another city, the city of Damascus. And on the way, God shows up and reveals himself to him. Strikes, at that time his name's Saul, strikes Saul blind, a couple days later, it's like scales fall from, literally scales fall from Saul's eyes so that he can see. It's a picture of you were blind to who Jesus is. But now through Jesus's power, he's made known to you who he is and he's opened your eyes. And then what the word comes to Saul of Tarsus, changing his name to Paul, is here's what I want you to do. After God converts him, he sends him. He says, I want you to go out and to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. That God converts and then he commissions. And the same thing is true for us, church. If, if God has saved you, if God has rescued you, if God has revealed his glory to you, if God has said to you, you are mine, then God has called you into his mission. If he has saved you, then God is sending you. And the truth is that you and I, we are not living in the fullness of all that God intends and all that God wants 
for us until we are giving our lives to God's mission. This is, let me give you, I'm going to give you for the rest of our time together, I'm going to give you three truth statements. Three true statements. Most of them I'm kind of pulling out of this text. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. And then I'm going to follow up with that true statement of to ask ourselves a question. The first true statement is this. God sends everyone that he saves. Still there? Seems a little... A little quiet in the house this morning. You guys still here? God sends on mission, on his mission, everyone that he saves. Now, God's mission isn't just to go and to do good works, go and be a good person. That certainly should be included in that. But Habakkuk 2, 14, what's the mission? Lost people can do good things. Man, I got some super sweet neighbors. They're great. They help me rake my yard when it needs to be raked. Sometimes my neighbor, when I'm out of town, my neighbor would mow my grass for me. Now, he doesn't mow it as good as I would do it or as good as Zach would do it. But hey, he's, that's a friend for you. Roll the trash can down to, down to the yard for us. They're great neighbors. Lost people can do good things. That's why the mission isn't just go and do good things. But the mission is to go and proclaim the excellencies of God. To go and to declare and to tell about what God has done and who God is through, you know, and what God has done through, through Jesus. That's what we're after. That's what we're called to do. So, so the, the truth is that God sends everyone that he saves. That if he has saved you, then he is sending you. And the follow-up question to that, the question we should ask ourselves then, it's not if I am called. Don't ask yourself that. It's not if I'm called. You are called if you are saved. But then the question becomes, to whom and to where am I called? It's not if I'm called, but the question we follow up with is to whom and to where am I called? That God has sovereignly, strategically, providentially placed you where you are so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That God puts us in places on purpose. The apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he affirms this in the book of Acts, that God chooses the places and the times in which men are to live, that God sovereignly, providentially, and strategically has placed you in the family that you are in. He's placed you with the friends that you have, placed you in the neighborhood in which you live, on the road in which you live. I know some of you are like, I don't live in a neighborhood. I live on a country lane. He's placed you on the country lane where you live, the subdivision in which you live in. He's given you the job that you have. He's given you the gym membership that you have. He's placed you in the school where you attend. He has sovereignly and strategically and providentially placed you in those places for a specific purpose. And that purpose is for you to share the knowledge of the glory and the excellencies of God with the people who are around you. There are people in your family, in your subdivision, at your place of work, where you leisurely hang out, in your school, who need to hear and need to know 
of the glory of God and the excellencies of God. And church, we would be remiss. Good grief, we would be remiss if we did not just mention the truth that there is a generation of people that are growing up in a post-Christian culture. That there was a particular time, especially like with my generation and older generations, where in school, in friendships, just we could say majority of the people grew up knowing who God is. They grew up knowing some truths about Jesus, some truths about the Bible. We just grew up like they know something They've heard something. It's not complete ignorance here. There's some truths, but that is no longer the case. Christendom is is gone. We now live in a post-Christian society, a post, it's past. It's no longer a Christian society. We can't send our kids to public school and think that our kids and their their, their, um, co-students and their friends are gonna hear about God. No, that's our job. That there are young men and young women in their 20s that you rub shoulders with every day that have never heard about Jesus. They've never heard who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. He may be another God among gods. He may be a good teacher. He may have been a good worker, but he is not the son of God who has come to die for the sins of the world. And we live in a time where kids are not told, 20 year olds have never been told that they're sinners or that they're wrong, or anything that they do. Oh, they may make some mistakes, but not that their sins have offended a God. That you and I, we have work to do. Like there was a time where we could have kind of laid back and be like, hey, it's just gonna happen, the natural flow of things. I can't imagine any of my school classmates not hearing about God, but those times are past. Church, we got it. What an opportunity though. What a great and glorious opportunity you and I have, because let's just be honest a huge chunk of what you and I heard about God and what we heard about the church, we heard about Jesus wasn't right. It was legalism of most of us. It was Baptist and religious tradition, but it wasn't about Jesus coming to set the captives free. It wasn't about like what this text says about the glory of God and the power of God. It was obey God or he'll give you really bad case of acne on the night before prom, right? It was act good or God just mean ogre in heaven. He's gonna get you. He's gonna strike you dead. And if you mess around with your girlfriend, you'll get AIDS, right? That's what we heard. We never heard about the glories and the excellencies. I mean, I love that what Peter says is we have opportunities to proclaim, to announce the excellencies, the excellent things that God has done that you and I, we need to live our lives like missionaries live our lives. We need to know that we're living in a culture that, that isn't Christian, it's not a Christian culture. And when we think about what missionaries do is missionaries leave a culture and they go to a culture. Most of them, they adopt that culture, the, the benign practices that don't go against scripture in that culture. They become good students of that culture. They meet people in that culture, they live out Christian lives in that culture. They understand the spiritual climate of that culture. They understand the idols of that culture, the places and objects of worship in that culture. They become good stewards of the culture. And you and I, we need to do the same thing here. We need to know that this is not our culture, that our culture is from heaven. We're living on foreign soil and foreign ground here. And we need to be as intentional as other missionaries going, missionaries going to China 
or wherever else may be going, Haiti or wherever else, you and I need to be equally as intentional. We need to live intentionally and think strategically. We need to see our jobs as platforms for us to carry out the mission. We need to see our homes as places where the mission can happen, where worship and discipleship, where we can practice hospitality by intentionally inviting others into the rhythms of our lives. We need to see our leisure activities as opportunities to build friendships and to share the gospel. Truth number two, mission, the mission exists because worship doesn't. Now, this may be a little bit of a shift in some of our thinking. I read a book years ago that put forth this, uh, this truth to me, but I didn't really understand it. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. It's a book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. And this is exactly as a line from that book. It's kind of the summation of the book that the mission exists because worship does not. And I'll be honest with you, it's just been over the last couple of months that I'm really understanding what uh, John Piper means by that. And I'm really starting to see with a new set of lenses my world around me. And here's the question. Is God worthy of their worship? I mean, that's a shift in my thinking. The question I'm asking myself now, is God worthy of my lost friends, the people around me, this community, my subdivision? Is God worthy of their worship? And certainly we would say yes. That when, that when Peter writes here and he says we are to proclaim, that means to publish broadly, the excellencies of God, what we want to do is we want to announce this. We want to tell people about how excellent, great, glorious, beautiful is our God. We want to proclaim the virtues of God, the exploits of God's power, that God is unmatched. God is uncontested in both his beauty and his excellency. That's not new thoughts for me. Maybe it's new thoughts for you. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, he says, uh, with whom shall we compare God to? To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness can you compare him? An idol? Are you kidding me? A craftsman casts it, he makes it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. Are you kidding me? Not an idol? Who can we compare God to? Who, Isaiah writes, who has measured all of the waters? We think about those waters again. All of the waters. Who has measured those waters in the hollow, right? That's the hollow of his hand. And you, some of you have been on cruises and you're out to sea for days upon days and you see no land. How much water is in the ocean? Some of you are like, quit it. I'm about to hyperventilate. I know those, you know, like how much water is in there? And yet God, he, he measures it in the palm of his hand. Think about how vast the solar system is, and yet God is so big and powerful that he can measure the solar system with just the spans of his fingers. Think about all the dust that's in this earth, right? Parents, of you understand that you dust something, 10 minutes, you come back later, it's covered in dust again. Like, where does that junk come from? I don't know. It's everywhere. It's a plethora of it. It's all around us. And yet it says that God can gather up all of the dust that's on this earth and measure it in a scale. So all the sands that are on every beach, God can measure them. The nations, Isaiah writes, is but just a drop in the bucket compared to God. 
Whom can you compare me to? And when we think about his greatness, the answer is to none can we compare you. And if you were that great, if you were that powerful, or if you were that glorious, then is not, are you not worthy of all of the inhabitants of the earth, worthy of their worship? The problem isn't whether you are glorious or not. The problem is, is our ignorance of your great glory. And that's our job, church, is to proclaim his excellencies and to proclaim his glory. When we think about Jesus, who, to whom could we compare Jesus to? We used to sing that song. Some of us grew up singing that song. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Right? And that's the truth. There is, he is the sweetest. He is the sweetest, kindest, most benevolent human that we've ever known because he is God that the beauty and excellencies of God have been made most evident in Jesus. And Jesus is revealing to us how powerful, how glorious, how beautiful God is. I mean, think about this. When it came time for Jesus to flex his muscles and to show his power, when it came time for Jesus to kind of take off the human flesh and to show them that, hey, I'm more than just a man here, how did he do it? How did he do it? He did it in, in, in humble ways, right? He did it in, in powerful, but yet humble ways. Um, this week uh, uh, um, at my house, a guy knocks on the door. I go to the door and it's, a, it's one of those uh, roofing contractors, salesperson, insurance company guys that they drive around and they look for the ones with the cruddy roofs and they go knock on your door. So that kind of tell you. And this guy stands at my door and he says, hey, uh, you know, here's the deal. You know, it looks like you're missing a few tabs on your roof and you got some, tab- you got this, you got that, got that, you know, hey, you care if I do a free inspection? And I'm like, hey, what's it gonna hurt, right? Go ahead and do your free inspection. Tell me about my roof. So the guy puts his ladder up, gets up, walks over the roof, takes a few, I'm gonna take a few pictures, take a few pictures, comes back down and the guy tells me, he says, man, yeah, your roof's bad and it needs, to be, uh, it needs to be repaired. But he said, here's the deal. If we can show how your roof was um, hurt, harmed, destroyed by an act of God, then your insurance will pay for it to have it replaced and you're just out your deductible. And he goes, do you want me to do some further studies in order to kind of prove that? And I was like, if my, I was like, well, I don't think my roof's been hurt. I think it's just, you know, over time. He goes, no, 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 what? Like, all we have to do is show that, you know, this area had I had an act of God come through, a strong wind, a hailstorm, a bad storm. And I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's what you think of as an act of God? And we do. Like often, we, we use that language in insurances, that in, that in insurance, you know, uh, world. That we think of an act of God as something that destroys, something that tears down. But yet that's not what we see in Jesus that when it came time for Jesus to show an act of God, he didn't tear anything down. He didn't destroy anything. In fact, one time Jesus is together with his disciples and the disciples go into a town. They share the good news of Jesus to the town and the town rejects them, sends them out. We don't want to hear it. Shut up, get out. And the disciples come back to Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus, why don't you flex your muscles and call fire down and destroy that city? Right? Well, why don't you show them what's up, right? Why don't you show them a real, true act of God? And Jesus does it. No, he didn't, right? Make sure you're still awake. He didn't do it. He didn't do it all. In fact, he rebuked his disciples for even thinking like that. And when it came time for Jesus to flex his muscles, what did he do? He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He welcomed their children to them. 
And ultimately, how did Jesus flex his muscles by going to a cross and dying for their sin and our sin? He flexed his muscles in being resurrected from the dead for our justification. There is no religion. There is no, there is no person out there, no religious leader, no nothing, anything like Jesus. No other gospel can we share. That no, other, no other message is really truly the gospel of the good news. Paul, what's the gospel of the good news? Paul sums it up like this. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. Every other religion says you repent and then God will show you kindness. Not the gospel. The gospel says, see how kind and benevolent God is. See how much he loves you in the person and the work of Christ. Now, won't you bend? Won't you come? Won't you bow to him? Won't you submit to him? Won't you love him in return? There is no, there is no other good news to give than this good news. And when we think about that, when we think about how incredibly beautiful Jesus is, then what fuels our mission is not just a passion for people, but what fuels our mission is a passion for God. That when we think about the beauties and the excellencies of Jesus, when we say there, to whom would we compare you to? There is nothing that we would compare you to. The truth is, is there are so many people who do not worship God. There are people who have passion and energy and zeal and enthusiasm. And all of that is being poured out on something. It's being poured out and it's being wasted upon mute, deaf, dead, cold idols. And you and I, we need to be filled with such a great zeal for God that we say to ourselves, we cannot sit idly by and see, see this zeal, this passion, people's hearts, people's worship being poured out on other things. God deserves this. And we want to see God receive this. We cannot sit idly by and know that God is being rejected and idols are being welcomed in, that you and I, we do mission because worship does not exist. And we want to see God known, loved, treasured in places where he's currently and by people and families where he's currently not known, loved, and treasured. We want him to receive the glory for his name. The folks in our culture and in our society, every one of them, they are living for something. Know that. And the most people that we, you and I, that we know, that we spend time with, that live near us, most of the people, they're living good lives, are they not? Two cars, decent houses, eating good food, right? Nice homes, jobs, kids, sports, laughter, food, joy. But do they really know God? The truth is they don't seem broken. They don't seem needy. They don't seem destitute. They're living what we would say is the good life, the American dream. They're living it up. We might even say that, well, they don't even seem like sinners. We would, we would know on a theological level that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we may say, hey, they don't even look like sinners. They're not even all that bad of people. And the truth is, that's a very broken and man-centered way of looking at it. Every person is living for something their energy, you included in this room. 
You included. You're living for something. Your energy, your time, your resources, the summation of your life. It's being poured out onto something. Something, some idea, some relationship, some pursuit. Everyone is pouring out all of their faith, all of their passion, all of their hope, all of their longing, all of the zeal of their heart is being poured out onto some thing. And the truth is, is it all belongs to God. God is worthy of every bit of it. But for most people in our American culture, it is being wasted. They're still pouring it out, but God is not the center of it. God is not the object of it. God is not the recipient of it. The mission exists because worship doesn't. And lastly, here's the last truth. We will promote what we find excellent and what we find beautiful. You and I, by nature, we will promote what we find beautiful and what we find excellent. If you do not believe me, get on Instagram. If you do not believe me, look onto Facebook. They exist as a platform for us to announce what we think is funny or beautiful and excellent. That's why they exist. And they are multi-million dollar businesses. And they exist because you and I, naturally, we will promote that which we find beautiful and that which we are excellent. You don't have to you don't have to be, be told to do it. You don't have to be commanded to do it. You don't even have to be encouraged to do it. It is naturally inside of you to promote what you think, what you find beautiful and what you find excellent. You know, sometimes, uh, my, sometimes my job is tough. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's tough. On Thursdays at Golden Agers, when it comes time to eat fried chicken, and Mr. Gay's green beans and mashed potatoes, my job's gravy, right? Like, no pun intended, but it's easy. But in that, sometimes, some folks want to show me the picture of their children and their grandchildren. And sometimes my job gets a little tough because they'll come to me with their phone or, the, or a real picture, and they'll say, hey, look, this is my, my grandbaby, right? I'm not talking about precious Naomi that's here. I'm not talking about her. She's gorgeous. But sometimes they'll show you, and they'll say, you know, here's my grandbaby. Like, isn't she beautiful? Yes, maybe, right? Maybe. Here's a picture of my, 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 my uh, teenage, you know, grand boy. That's, he's going through puberty. Isn't he cute? Yes, he's absolutely, he's absolutely cute, right? Acne and greasy hair is always beautiful, right? And he'll grow into that nose, right? It's going to happen. And what are they exhibiting there? They're, they're exhibiting this truth that we say, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. To that grandma, to us who are in here who are parents, dude, I'm absolutely smitten by my kids. Now, I think they're the most, well, Grace and not, but the girls certainly are the most beautiful <laughs> things I've ever laid eyes on. Right? Why? Because beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And isn't that ultimately what, isn't that ultimately the crux of Christianity? That you and I are the ones, by God's sovereign power, 
by his will, by his great glory and grace, he has revealed, he's shown his beauty to us. We've beheld him. So that's the language the apostle Paul said, we beheld him. Or I'm sorry, John said, we've beheld him. In all of his glory, we beheld him. We saw him as who he is. And the same thing you and I get to do, that beauty really is in the eye of the beholder, that, that we will speak about what captivates our souls. We will speak about what we find beautiful. That the real issue and why you and I are not zealous in proclaiming the excellencies of God is not that we don't really know what to say. The real issue why we do not proclaim the excellencies of God isn't because we're fearful they're going to ask a question and we're not going to have the right answer to it. The real crux, I believe, nine times out of ten, is the reason why you and I don't share the gospel, don't talk about the beauty and the excellencies of God is oftentimes we are not in awe of God. The real fundamental issue is that oftentimes you and I, we are bored with God. We're not satisfied by God. We're not satiated by God that we lose the wonder and the sense of awe and majesty in God because you and I oftentimes are turning to other things and other places in order to find satisfaction, joy, and belonging that only God can give. The truth is every one of us would say every one of those is broken cisterns, but yet they captivate our souls and they captivate our hearts. Surely most of us have lived long enough in the Christian life to know that there is no joy. There is no lasting joy or contentment or satisfaction apart from God. And the key to this, I think the key to us sharing the gospel is found even in this text. Let's look at this text one last time. 1 Peter 2, 9. And I'm gonna break 1 Peter 2, 9 down into three parts. 1 Peter 2, 9b, I think it'll be um, highlighted for you on the text. It's bold and bold. Maybe you can see it. That's the mission. You proclaiming the excellencies of him. That's the mission you've been called on. That's That's the command in the text. You proclaiming the excellencies of him. But here's the truth. You and I will never feel natural to do 1 Peter 2, 9b until our greatest joy is 1 Peter 2, 9a, 9c, and 10. Until our greatest joy is that we are a chosen race, we didn't deserve this, God chose us. That we're a royal priesthood, that is that he's purified us. We're a holy nation. He's called us to himself. He's separated us from the world, a people of his own possession. God has purchased us through the blood of Christ. He has said to us, you are mine. 9C, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse number 10, that once you and I were not a people, we were scattered, we had no family, we were, we were orphaned, but now you are people. Once you, were, you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. That when your heart is touched from God, when you and I, when we know the fullness of our salvation and all that it means for us, that when we deeply are drinking in the cost the Father paid for us, all that the Son paid to purchase us, when we know that all of that was rooted and grounded in a personal covenantal love for you, when we know that, that the Father loves us and accepts us and finds, our heart finds that, 
that we hear that and it isn't just numb and dead upon our hearts, but when our hearts uh, reverberate with that truth, when we say that is beautiful and that is excellent and that is glorious, it frees us. It frees us to do what we're naturally going to do. It frees us from our love affair with this world and it frees us from our fear of man. But like Isaiah, when we see the glory of God and all that God has done, God's sacrifice on our behalf that we gladly offer ourselves to go and to speak and to represent God to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Jesus, we are your church. Many of us, if not most of us in here would say that you have purchased us. You have saved us. We're about to observe the Lord's Supper where we're declaring that your body being broken, your blood being shed was for us. We are the benefactors of that. May we first and foremost, when we be captivated by the beauty that is found in you and in your gospel, that when we read the pages of scripture, we wouldn't just be fulfilling a duty. We wouldn't just be following a plan of a discipline, but when we read the pages of scripture, we'd be savoring the picture that it's painting of your great love for your people, of the lengths in which you have gone to show and display your power and your love to that people. And may our hearts, our affections be stirred with that. And as our affections are stirred, as we are captivated in our souls by your beauty and your majesty and your glory, may we go and tell. May we go and tell. And we invite people into our lives so they can witness what true freedom and true joy looks like, harmony in a household looks like. May we just proclaim that. May we tell our coworkers. May we just find ourselves, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, just constantly talking about you, no matter where we are, whether we're at work, we're at home, lying down, sitting up, walking down the road, whatever we're doing, we're just talking about you, that it feels very natural We naturally speak about what we find beautiful and excellent. May we find you beautiful and excellent so that we may speak about you. In your name we pray, amen.